Let us pray. Father God, in your word this morning is a picture of you and who you are that we need to see, just like the prophet Habakkuk saw. We need to see it because, Lord, we, in trying times and difficult times, often wander and look towards other things, but there's something to be seen in you that gives us peace in moments of chaos. So please allow us, enlighten our hearts through the power of your Spirit to see more clearly your powerful hand this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we last heard from the book of Habakkuk, uh, and and that, that verse I asked Jesse to add to the passage, we read, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And we already considered last week a little bit about that verse. But I thought it would be a good way to start to actually consider how incredible that verse from the lips of God would have been to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, at the start of this prayer journey, had really just been praying for a region that is Judah at this time, that in this time and place in history was about one-thirteenth the size of Pennsylvania. One-thirteenth. So we start adding a couple counties together, and all of a sudden you would get a fairly small region in which Habakkuk had been praying that that region might come to the Lord with reverence and awe, that they might know His commandments, know His commands. And here, God, as He closed, verse 2, in His response to Habakkuk, says, I don't just want Judah. I want the entire world. I want all the world. I want that world to be mine. And to essentially hear my name and have reverence and awe before my name, as it was intended to originally be. You know, we on Tuesday or on Wednesday, or because we can somehow count an American Idol four million votes in a commercial break, but in states need several days to do it. But if, I'm sorry, I guess, I guess that would be a threat to democracy to even wonder why it takes so long. But we saw maps on the news painting the country, painting it either blue or red, painting this, this nation. We're one nation of 195. Who will control it all? God said to Habakkuk, and he says to us still as well, I want it all. I want it all. I don't just want one nation under God. I want all the nations under God. I want the whole thing. That's the enormity, some of the enormity of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. And so the question becomes, then how are you to do it? I could just kind of picture Habakkuk. He got this response from God, and God had told him, what he would do, and he just is meditating on it. What does this all mean? 
And he's meditating in silence. He had just been told to go south before the Lord. And he begins to write this prayer. This beautiful prayer. And then we look in verse 1. You read that so well, Jesse. We read, according to Shigeonath. Shigeonath. So what in the world? Who is this Shigeonath? Or I'm saying it because I'm away from the notes. So phonetically put it up. Who is he, we want to say? Who is this person? And you'd be asking the wrong question because it's actually, and we know this from Psalm 7, which we were talking about in Sunday school downstairs, it's actually a style of music. We, have, we sang, for instance, my eyes have seen the glory, or sometimes the flight of the Valkyries, if you think of that music. There, there is this, this chaotic kind of sound to it, but it's a measured chaos, a controlled chaos, a profound kind of chaotic tone to it. And Habakkuk actually says, this prayer that I'm writing down, this prayer as I behold a world that once was in a certain way, a world that was a, a Judah, and it's going to enter into this new era. I don't know what this new era is going to be, but God has promised somehow through the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, that he's going to bless it. You're, I want you to carry this song with you. I want you to sing this song in a tone and an arrangement that would portray some chaos, and yet the words are going to make clear that in the chaos of this hymn, this prayerful hymn, you can see God throughout it all. That's all in verse 1. That's actually what, in one sense, he is telling us. And, and he commands the people to basically sing this song. You know, one of the great robberies that we have as a church in not having a psalter, I, I really would like us to get a psalter here very, 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 very soon, is God in his word, both the New Testament and Old Testament, actually ask us to sing his own word back to him? This is actually a commandment of God, and Habakkuk is setting up this song to be sung for the generations that follow. We want to be people who know the word of God, and I often have to even people come with me, oh, you know the word of God so well, I wish I could know the word of God like you. I really don't know it all that well, and, but how much better would we all know it if we were to sing it at times in worship. Don't you think that might help us as we kind of enter into our own version of a brave new world, of a world that maybe will not look like the days of old? And so Habakkuk writes this song, this prayerful song, so that people could sing it in the coming generations. And before I really dive into the song, I first have to get frustrated about it. I'm really frustrated about it. Actually, two it's in, ver in verse two of this passage. We read incorrectly in the ESV. I couldn't even find a commentator who would defend this translation. And it says the following. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And this is a big problem in the translation. I don't normally like to pick on it too much. But if we remember back to the high watermark of the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, 
The righteous will be saved by a faithfulness of the him who is to come, and in his faithfulness, he will make his people faithful. And of course, that him is appointing to Christ, a foreshadowing to Christ. And in here, for the word that they translated it both times, it is in the masculine singular. So I am a single male. Well, I'm not single, I'm married. But I'm in the singular as I'm one male standing here before you. And if you called me an it, I would feel insulted. And I probably deserve it because at times I deserve such a thing. But this should be translated the following. And it does make a huge difference. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive him. In the midst of the years, make him known. In wrath, remember mercy. How did this book begin? It began with Habakkuk wanting the nation he lived in to remember God again. And Habakkuk was told it was going to be destroyed so God could fix it. And Habakkuk struggled at first, but then a chapter ago, we uncovered the reality that a hymn is coming who we, the righteous, will live by and through his faithfulness to us. And now Habakkuk's song and the sounding of chaotic notes and the sounding of, in one sense, a, a hymn that is unlike any other. Habakkuk wants us to sing going from one former era into a new bygone era, a prayer for God to revive the memory of him when it comes time for judgment. And for God to make the him known more fully in those times of judgment. And as we sit as a nation today, wouldn't this hymn still work for us on November 13th of 2022? Could we sing in America in the year of our Lord 2022? Oh, we wish people that we would remember him again, our God. Oh, we wish people would come to know him, our God, in our own day. Of course we could. Just as the words ring true for Habakkuk's song, the words still ring true for us in song today. No longer is the prophet concerning himself for the looming disaster befalling about to befall the society and nation he lives in. He's no longer saying, God, can we try to stop this from happening? Can we figure out another way? No, rather, what the prophet is focused on in this purple hymn is God, in the midst of this disaster, in the midst of this chaos, will you begin to make people know you again? Will you let new people come to know you? This prayerful song actually tells us something about prophecy that I could probably say until I'm blue in the face and some of you are just going to disagree with it. Uh, and because you just love looking at prophecy in a different way. We love, and I include myself on this, to look at prophecy as like guesswork of the future. Guesswork of the future. Uh, I think this is being fulfilled in this, and so 
That means this is about to happen, this is about to happen, this is about to happen. And that's not how the Old Testament prophets really saw prophecy. All throughout this book, Habakkuk's glimpse into the, glimpse into the future, his seen into the future in one sense, has been to serve, to glor, to more gloriously present the God to him. He, he gets excited about prophecy not because he sees the future. Future is just a, an element in time. It's a created thing. He gets excited because through judgment, through prophecy, through this prophecy, he's getting to know more about the character of God. He gets to look more at the character of God. And so that is the beauty of prophecy. They don't... It's not to just tell us about the future. It's actually to first and foremost serve to cause us to sing more fully to the Lord. And then we have the last part of verse 2. We read, in wrath, remember mercy. It's not that Habakkuk needs to remind God to remember mercy. But it's God announcing this. Here we have... The Word of God. And the Word of God plainly testifies as to who God wants us to be. And, and it's not like God is coming up with his own owner's manual. He's the owner of us and he has given us his perfected Ikea instructions in one sense to follow in order to build us up. To make us function and form as a society in a way that is godly and good. This is his word. Singing this week about the decline of America. And I think part of it is in the fact that somehow in the creed of this country, it got caught up in this humanistic idea of you can be whoever you want to be. That's a part of the American dream. You can be whoever you want to be. It sounds like a good thing to tell your kids. It, it sounds inspiring. You can be whoever you want to be. And yet we worship a God that says, I want you to be what I've called you to be. Not who you want to be. I want to be who you are called to. And those are coming into great contrast. And so that when a William going to the University of Pennsylvania wants to be a Leah and swim against girls, well, we have an ethos in America. We have a creed. You can be whoever you want to be. So who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? That's the creed of the country. This is the word of God. The word of God declares, I want you to be who I've called you to be. And if you don't want to be who God's called you to be, and if you don't want to advocate for the things that God has called you to advocate for, then I hope judgment comes upon you. Judgment that will either make himself known to you once more, and for you to actually have a holy reverence and awe before him. And that you would so desire never to believe 
the, the heretical humanistic creed of you can be whatever you want to be. But rather desire to be who God has called you to be. That just it is a reformation in your heart. And to such a nation as Judah, who wanted to be whatever they wanted to be, and not who God called them to be, we now have, and I couldn't even believe this when I read it, apparently this is the longest passage, most descriptive passage of any theophany of God in the Old Testament. What is that? Theophany is this like manifestation of God and appearance of God in the Old Testament before he takes on human flesh. This is the longest passage, apparently. I still don't know if I believe it, but that's what I read. And it's going to be a passage about God coming in judgment. You know, people love to pretend Jesus is just like peace, love, and happiness. He preaches more on hell than any prophet in the scriptures and judgment. And if we're a Christian, of course, we know we deserve judgment. And yet the word we receive is a good word. And we know that through God's stripes, we have been healed. Through the fact that the Son has been judged, we have been healed. And the great irony of Habakkuk, if you're looking at the order of events, we so often look out in the world and go, they got to be judged to fix this whole place. If you look at the order of Habakkuk, first Judah has to be judged. First the congregation of the Lord has to be judged. And then eventually the nations will be judged. Reform actually has to happen from the church within before it can extend to the society outside of it. And God's outpouring of judgment will serve to both save those who are continually ignoring God and also save those who need to be restored unto a greater faithfulness. <coughs> so let's look at this God starting in verse 3. He, he remembers the God who was with them in the wilderness. Now, these regions here listed here, they are the regions that fall really between Sinai, Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and for Judah. And these regions traditionally are associated with Ishmael and with Esau, not with Isaac and Jacob. This was the wilderness area. This was a region where God, in his theophanic glory, led them by cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, through this region, through the time period of when he promised and when he fulfilled. And so Habakkuk is remembering this time, this former time, of how God led this people in the Exodus from one place to the other through a wilderness time period, and he's basically connecting that to the reality that God will somehow deliver these people from the time period of Babylon and their destruction to, well, some will say 70 years, and that's a proper understanding. I will later argue Habakkuk has in mind the coming of Christ. And so then in, from verses 3 through 7, really 3b, 
we have this passage giving us a lot of detail about he and him. No it to be found. This him is covered in light. You could say once in one sense, this vision that Habakkuk receives of this him and this he is adorned in light. A light that dispels the darkness. Does that sound like anyone you know? Does that sound like anyone you know, Christian? One covered in light. And then in the middle verse, this just gave me goosebumps as I meditate upon it and considered it this week. Rays of light flash from his hand. And it's really twofold. In one sense, he is the God who can say, let there be light. But I thought of, I thought of the end of the Gospel of John and what we learn there in Thomas's doubt. We learn many things there. Thomas is the first one to declare who Jesus is, that he is his Lord and his God. But Jesus, the first thing Jesus says is, Thomas, come feel my hand. We learn that Jesus is going to have a marred hand. We're actually going to be able to see the nails, the holes. When we see him in his glory, he will be adorned with it through all eternity. The rays of light that extends from his hands is being talked about. And that's just, that's just an amazing image. An amazing image that he's being led to see. Christian, we worship a God in whom when we behold him for all of eternity, we'll have hands that will declare his love for us, the light of his love for us. That God allowing himself to be offered unto judgment for our sins, he remembered mercy. And all we have to do is look to his hands to see the light of that truth. And then verse 4 closes with him adorned in light, veiled in power. The veil in there, in one sense, is almost like an armor. It's a shield. The light is his armor. This is a warrior of light, in armor of light, with hands of light, adorned in light. He is beautiful indeed. And we begin to see him judge the earth. And he is allowing plagues and illnesses to take root upon the earth. And he allows nations to tumble and fall. And he destroys the ungodly and he allows them to be scattered. Things that once puffed up people, he def we see him deflating it. And he has a purpose to doing this. He has an everlasting purpose. God will shake up the nations when they deserve judgment. And so he will judge, and as we talked about earlier, he will judge his own people before he judges the ungodly. Even the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, writes the following. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God will judge in such a way in order that his people might remember him and that more people might know him. And if you leave this sermon just understanding those two things, why does God judge? Why does God allow bad things to happen at times in our own understanding? Well, he does it so that people might remember him and more people might come to know him. Then you have a good understanding of what I'm trying to make most clear here today. And now as we shift from verses 3 to 7, we focus on the description of the hymn 
who was to come for Habakkuk. And Habakkuk now shifts into a, addressing this him who is God using the language of you and your. And verses 8 through 10 can be really confusing for people because it's a lot about God and water. We live in a place where nobody ever needs sprinklers and we all have indoor plumbing, but there is a lot going on here. First remember how, well, let's first go back to the beginning. God is a God who hovered over the spirit of the waters, the earth, and its fullness. And yet, that earth is in rebellion to him, and so there is an, always an illustration with the waters that connects to that imagery. But within the region and time period that Habakkuk lived in, God purposely picked a region, picked a, an area of the world where his people would be tempted to pray to false gods like Baal for water, for rain. If you think of even Elijah the prophet, his like with the Baal prophets was a lot of this involved in it. And so here is God, and he shows, I control it all. I control the chaos, I control the provision, I control even the means of life. There is actually, in one sense, uh, also an illustration of this, here we have the baptismal font moved over here this week. You can't see it very well, but that's okay. You'll see it in a future week. But you either can be washed in this water or in the judgment to come. The God who controls all water. And so God is showing here that he is a God in control and power over all nature. And whether a hurricane hits, a famine takes place, God will use such judgments in order to bring more into knowing him. We just went through the story of Joseph. That was a massive famine. And he used it so that he could bring more into knowing him and his power. We even see the powerful kind of conversion of Judah in part and others within the household. But it doesn't have to be at a global scale. Hardship can even happen in the home in order for God to more magnify himself. And then we have this beautiful revelation that happens in verse 13. This hymn we've been talking about, looking in the song of Habakkuk, he went out for the salvation of his people and for the salvation of your anointed. Now, the word anointed there and what the reference is does anybody know the other word for anointed? The popular word starts with an F. Messiah. So the prophet Habakkuk is telling the people of Judah that after the judgment of God by Babylon, wait for the time of the Messiah. I believe that's what he's referencing. If you want to crack open the first chapter of your New Testament, it begins with the genealogy. And the genealogy begins with his Matthew's genealogy. It goes from Abraham to David. It's 14 generations. Then it goes from David to the destruction of the temple by Babylon. That's 14 generations. Then it goes from the destruction of the temple to the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Habakkuk is telling the people when you're singing this song, remember that you are to wait for the Messiah who is to come. The hymn who is coming is the Messiah. The Messiah will be brought about through the destruction of the temple. This is the next major event to occur. Think about that. There were Jews who yesterday sang probably this hymn because they'll sing the hymns, the words of God. 
not realizing, not understanding that the Messiah has already come. <clears throat> and what about this Messiah? Still in verse 13. He, notice he crushes the head of the house of the wicked. Christian trivia question. Who is the head of wickedness? Satan himself. This Messiah, according to Habakkuk's hymn, is the skull crusher of the greatest kind of evil Babylon can muster, Satan himself. And after that revelation, Habakkuk desires us to pause once more with Selah. I didn't mention that earlier, but every time you say Selah, it's, it's in one sense, take a meditative pause. And then picking up again, we read in verse 14 how somehow Satan was destroyed and his armies with him by using Satan's own arrows. And there's a lot of truths that wrapped up into this. I wonder how long it took for Satan to realize the folly of the cross. Uh, he's possibly still in denial of it, that he helped usher in and probably joyously celebrating the death of son. He probably just loved to see those nail-pierced hands and to see him hang there and to see him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He probably convinced himself of the successfulness of all that he did. And yet it was all a judgment. But it was a beautiful judgment. It was a judgment God used in order to secure and save a people unto himself. And it was a judgment that just crushed Satan at his head. And the power of Satan over the people of God so that we could start our life in holiness, that we could have the Spirit of God within us and begin to finally say, not whatever I want to be, but I want to be what he has called me to be. I wonder. But also, know this, hold on to this, in the year of our Lord, 2022, God has already designed evil to destroy itself. It doesn't reproduce. It, 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 well, it does reproduce at times, but it doesn't, it's not going to sustain itself over the long haul. You look at policy platforms that are just evil in our country. It's all about death, bodily mutilation that will change somebody for the rest of their life, types of realities that they will not be able to have, naturally speaking, the fruit of the womb, not challenging and encouraging people to, to grow together in a covenant relationship that celebrates decades together of, of being pushed by, by someone who is different than you. There's no reason for any of that in the platform of evil. And so there's also this idea that evil just destroys itself, that God in his judgment has made the patterns of evil at some point it gets so bad that the pridefulness of it all just kills itself. We all know, like, Hitler Hitler could have won the war if he just waited to assault Russia for a little while. But Hitler's pride got the better of him. So did Napoleon. So did, we could just go down the list. We can say this in, in like, military leaders in history, but we don't say that of just the general idea of evil. Evil destroys itself through this chaos. And our valiant warrior prevails, this messianic figure who is draped in light, who has raised a light in the very palms of his hands, who remembers mercy and judgment and allows judgment to take place so that more might come to know him and some might start remembering him. And then in considering verse 16, we have an amazing thing. 
You remember how the prophet started this book? He started it by saying, How long, O Lord? How long? How long? And Habakkuk has now been given this vision of the warrior draped in light. The warrior who in judgment will make those who don't know him, know him, some, some enemies, and those who will not remember him, remember him. That warrior draped in light, now the prophet has totally changed over the course of three chapters in his prayer journey. While, one time, while he began with being impatient towards God, he now ends with, God, I've seen you. I can wait for it. I've seen you, you warrior of light. I can wait for you. I can have the patience now. I know what you're doing. I know that you are long-suffering. I know that you are God who is accomplishing, that you are God who does not abandon, that you are God who has set his sights on more than just one-thirteenth of the size of Pennsylvania. You're God who is accomplishing something throughout the world. And you're going to do this through this messianic figure, this warrior of light who will crush the head of the serpent. So I can wait on you, Lord. I can trust you in despair, even when it's hard. Even There's always this description in verse 16, and he's troubled in his stomach. He's sick to his stomach, but yet he trusts in you. I thought, my wife's probably going to be mad at me. He's probably sharing too much. But when we heard, the doctor suggested we needed to abort Bridget. Bridget was going to come to, to live. I remember we came out. We came out of that meeting. Of course, we told them we couldn't do that. It wasn't in our vocabulary. It wasn't an option for us. It's child labor. We came out. My mom had been watching the kids in the, in the general room of the thing. We had planned to have a celebratory meal at my favorite prime rib place, Lowry's. And she could just see it. And this meal, this meal that usually was good, we couldn't eat it. We couldn't eat it. it, it and there's, there's this, it's not that Habakkuk is totally okay in verse 16, but at some point, my wife and I learned both on that day when we heard those words, and God was good. God blessed it. God saw it through. But at some point, even during the rest of the months of that delivery. We just had to learn, God is a good God. He's a warrior of light. Rather than just complaining to him, we just have to wait on him. Wait to see what he does. Wait to see how what the full, in the fullness of his wisdom he does. And I would say there's been no more refining time in our marriage. In our marriage than for four months believing our baby was going God uses times of hardship, times of judgment, times of sorrow, times of struggle to cause his people to remember him once more and also to bring new people in. And so if the map on Tuesday or the map on Wednesday, I'd, they're probably still counting somewhere. I haven't turned on the TV since Wednesday. But if people are celebrating because they painted this area blue, or this area red, the warrior of light, he wants it all. 
He's embraced nail-pierced hands to take it all. And one day it will all be his. And all his people will no longer want to be whatever you want to be. They want to be what his word calls us to be. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, rebellion starts in the heart. And yet through the power of your spirit, through the sacrifice of Christ, you have given us new hearts. Hearts of flesh. We praise you for this gift. We praise you for your goodness. We thank you that even though we come here every week, and Lord, unfortunately, we still have sins to confess, indwelling sins, indwelling moments where we are not conformed to the spirit of your word, that a new day is coming, a better day is coming where we will fully see this warrior of light face to face. And when we see him, Lord, we will be made fully like you. We praise you for the goodness of this truth. And so we wait on you in all your judgments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord. <laughs>